Hello. In a thoughtful, balanced, but important ways damning report, the Commons Health and Social Care and Science and Technology Committees have produced what will no doubt be one of the first of many investigations into the government's handling of the COVID pandemic. One quote from that report stands out. It reads, Decisions on lockdowns and social distancing during the early weeks of the pandemic and the advice that led to them rank as one of the most important public health failures the United Kingdom has ever experienced. My guest today is one of many scientific experts who found themselves frequently at the centre of the public gaze during the pandemic. Her insights and warnings have led to her being lauded, but also attacked. She's also a leading expert in another area of controversy, the use of remote digital channels by clinicians, and particularly GPs. And that use of virtual consultations is, of course, part of a wider debate about how the NHS can best take advantage of the massive and accelerating scale of innovation in digital, data and medtech. My guest has also insights into how we help the NHS become one of the most innovative health systems in the world. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Trish Greenhalgh, Professor of Primary Care at Oxford University. Hi, Trish. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's great to talk to you. I just want to start by asking you to give our listeners, a kind of sense of the range of your work, because you, you you look at a whole number of areas. So tell us just about the kind of where you're focusing your energy and where you have been over the last few years. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I was trained as a GP. Uh, and before that, I actually trained in hospital medicine in diabetes. And so my very first research was looking at how GPs and hospital clinicians could work together in something called shared care for diabetes. So, you know, that was sort of 30 years ago. Um, And since then, I've done a lot of different studies um, which go right across the clinical spectrum. But I'm particularly interested in the organisation and delivery of services and also in how we can make services equitable. So I spent 25 years in the East End of London, for example, doing a lot of work on uh, providing Uh, services that would be accessible by the full range of minority ethnic groups and social groups uh, in that part of London. Let's start by talking about COVID. What what was it like first to find yourself so much in the public eye in terms of some of the things that you said? I mean, you were ahead of the game in many areas in, in, in predicting what might happen and what we should be doing about it. And as I say, that brought you a lot of attention, a lot of praise, but also being attacked. How, how was that? Uh, well, I think we all look back on the period of, you know, sort of March, April 2020 as the most extraordinary uh, period, sort of personally, professionally. It was absolutely unprecedented. Um what I was a full-time academic then, as I am now. I wasn't doing any clinical work um, because my academic job had sort of taken over. Uh, I, the first thing I did was volunteered to do clinical work, and I was told, look, you'd be better off staying where you are and giving us the evidence that will help guide our uh, clinical actions. 
So that was a great steer. I realized that I could do more and possibly save more lives if I applied my skill set to generating and distributing evidence on this uh, new disease. And quite by chance, I had been planning to welcome a group of Chinese professors to visit Oxford uh, in the end of March 2020. And of course, they cancelled that trip because in about January 2020, they were in a, in a city called Guangdong, which was the, the second city in China after Wuhan to, to have a, a kind of COVID outbreak. And so they were sending me all sorts of information and guidance that they had put together for the management of COVID in China. And I think that's why I got together very early on with a couple of colleagues and wrote an article which was published in the British Medical Journal in March 2020, how to assess people with suspected acute COVID in primary care in the remote environment that we were now doing. You know, we're doing it by the phone, weren't we? Mm. So I wrote this piece Uh, which was really a summary of the evidence we had based on Chinese data. Uh, And that was published very, very quickly, you know, within days of us finishing it. And within about six or seven days of of the BMJ publishing that, it had appeared in a NICE guideline, which was quite extraordinary because you think of NICE guidelines as things that are put together very meticulously by committees who reflect on the evidence and it usually takes forever. But this was a really fast produced NICE guideline. So very, very quickly, I suddenly realized, oh, my gosh, um, I've become a bit of a source of authority on this. And yet I've never actually seen a patient with COVID. You know, it was all done on reviewing uh, the literature that was being very rapidly generated and circulated as what we all now know are preprints in the literature. So then I suppose we got on to the mismatch between the evidence that came from China and the evidence that was coming out of the hospitals in in the UK and what was going on in primary care. Because actually the vast majority of people with COVID were either self-managing at home or they were being managed by their GP or by the COVID clinical advisory service, you know, the NHS 111 phone service. Um, So that meant that all that data that came from people who'd made it into hospital wasn't terribly relevant. So we then did some quick research We did interviews with patients who'd been acutely ill. We did interviews and online focus groups and other kinds of online surveys and things with GPs, with nurse practitioners, with paramedics. And we started to put together a picture of uh, what's happening in primary care to the people who uh, don't make it to hospital and also to the people who do go on to make it to hospital. Uh, And that was the RECAP study, Remote um, COVID Assessment in Primary Care, uh, which had both a qualitative component and a very big quantitative component where we followed many, many thousands of patients from that first phone call through into hospital. uh, And, you know, those who sadly died, we were um, particularly interested in what had been the features of their illness right at the beginning uh, that could have predicted, um, you know, the fact that they were going to do badly. Uh, and so, we, you know, we're still writing some of that up now, but it, it all happened very, very quickly, actually. 
Now we'll we'll come on in a few minutes, Trish, to the, the question of more the broader question of, of of your insights into how innovation takes place and the ways the best ways to bring technological and scientific progress into systems. But one of the things that w- was said quite a lot during COVID was that an opportunity of it was to accelerate the pace because, as you've just described, the pace at which we had to learn. The, the way in which, in, for example, ICUs, uh, there were kind of WhatsApp groups with clinicians comparing interventions they were making and trying them out almost in real time. And of course, the development of the variety of vaccines that we've got. Do you think it's right to draw a conclusion from all of this that we could be speeding up the innovation cycle? Um, I think innovations tend to happen uh, in times that are turbulent you know, be it during war, for example, is another very good um, example of situations where things get invented and tested very, very quickly. Uh, And I think, yes, in some areas of science, the pandemic has, dare I say it, been quite good for science. And one example actually is platforms for randomized controlled trials. So, So the idea is you're not just testing drug A against placebo or drug A against the best current uh, drug that people usually give, Uh, you're developing a platform where you can very quickly slot in any new drug that uh, someone develops or wants to repurpose. The ethics are all in place. You just have to do a quick amendment. Uh, The infrastructure is there. The data collection Uh, is all there. And it means that you can then launch into a very rapid clinical trial. And of course, at times when there's a lot of COVID about it, it doesn't take that long to amass the number of participants in the studies to be able to complete the study fairly quickly. And that's why, you know, we've not only got, uh, we got definitive evidence very early on that dexamethasone was useful in people who were very sick in hospital, and also that dexamethasone wasn't much use unless you were very sick in hospital. We should also talk very quickly about vaccines. I'm not a vaccine expert, but I think we are all amazingly impressed at the speed with which vaccines were developed, tested, shown to be safe, uh, and uh, then sort of um, rolled out. Now, having said that, it's the rollout that's been the most difficult, hasn't it? So it brings me to my point that not all innovation uh, is helped by pandemic situations. So the kind of bench science, the the platform studies, the studies that are uh, readily put through this kind of protocol can be greatly accelerated and have been greatly accelerated. And I think that's wonderful. There are other aspects of research that really didn't go so well. Uh, For example, the social science aspects of vaccine uptake, vaccine hesitancy, um, vaccine inequity, uh, all that kind of thing. You know, it's now been nearly a year since the first vaccines were approved and released. Uh, and still there are, you know, some sectors of the population in the UK and certainly some whole countries where the uptake of those vaccines has been very low. Uh, so 
you know, we could ask ourselves why not, but but certainly just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean that every, every aspect of science is going to progress more smoothly and more rapidly, quite the opposite. Just before we leave COVID, I talked about that inquiry, the Health and Social Care and Science and Technology Committee inquiry. It will. It is the first of, of many, no doubt. Do you have a sense of what we're going to learn from these inquiries? I'll I, I tell you what my, my feeling is right now. I feel we'll learn something for the historical record. So, you know, as it were, future generations will be able to look back and form a kind of reasonable consensus about what happened and why some countries did well and other countries did badly. I also think it'll help in lots of technical ways in in terms of our understanding of of, of some of the things we've just talked about, about how it is you respond to a, a crisis like this, how you develop new drugs and vaccines or whatever. What I feel slightly less positive about is a kind of political and societal implications of it, the sense of learning something about COVID held up a mirror to elements of our political system, elements of our society. I see, I have to, I don't want to be pessimistic, I see less evidence that that's going to take place. What, what's your sense, Trish? Um, I think it, it's, we're all still reading from that report and I've read bits of it with, with um, a feeling of horror, actually. But I suppose to try and pull some learning from this, I think the point that I would make is not that scientists were wrong. Um, I think there was a lot of good science being talked about in those key committees. Um, There was also a lot of scientific hesitancy, the sort of natural, uh, oh, we don't want to overdo it. We don't want to overreact. Um, You know, the public wouldn't cope with a lockdown, all those kind of things. Um, but but actually, there was quite a lot of good science being uh, put on the table as well, you know, modelling and all the rest of it. The thing that bothers me is there wasn't deliberation over those different kinds of science that were being tabled. Um, so what you got was the scientists would very quickly come up with a recommendation and the politicians and, and senior civil servants would say, oh, right, that's it then. We better not do anything. You know, it looks like the scientists say we shouldn't do anything. Whereas, you know, there's a, there's a piece in, in the report um, with Matt Hancock, who was the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care at the time, saying, I bitterly regret not pushing back because common sense showed us that this was an escalating pandemic, common sense, he used that expression, um, that really we ought to have been acting and acting promptly. Now, what you had there was science pulling rank over common sense, if you like. Uh, And some of us were saying, do you know what? I'm siding with common sense here. I'm not waiting for scientific evidence. It's all looking a bit bad and all right, if we lock down um, and if we all put masks on and it was unnecessary, then we can, you know, someone will laugh at me. But, you know, fewer people will have died. But if we get this wrong, um, this could be catastrophic. And I was saying that back in March 2020. And so were various other people, including Dominic Cummings, interestingly. Um, but 
there was no real pushback on the science. And therefore, the lack of deliberation, I think, can explain quite a lot of those knee-jerk reactions. I think the other thing that comes out um, a little bit between the lines in that report is that we had a particular prime minister who was not known for his attention to detail uh, and had a bit of a track record of winging it. Um, And I think he, as an individual, got up and said, oh, I'm still going into hospitals. I'm shaking hands with people who've got COVID. Next thing you knew, he was in hospital himself. Um, And that, you know, I just wonder if we'd had a different kind of leadership from the top, someone who was more into the detail, a a bit more proactive, uh, whether things would have been very different. Uh, Let's move on to to another area of controversy, which you've you've talked about a little bit already, but that's the debate about digital or or virtual care. Now, you know, I've, I've watched with some dismay the same newspaper's that are prone from time to time to get their columnists to bemoan the fact that the NHS is not as advanced and modernised as it should be, then turning on the NHS when it comes to encouraging people to use online consultations in the same way as they use online tools for all sorts of other things. So, I mean, what's your sense of, of what's going on in this debate, and, and how has it how has it gone wrong? Because it, it, it certainly seems to have gone yeah, wrong. It has um, gone wrong. <laughs> I think that's a good way of putting it. So first of all, let's get one thing straight. Healthcare is not banking, right? Now, one's interaction with a clinician, uh, and I speak as someone who's got a relative going through a pretty serious illness at the moment, one's interaction with a clinician is an ethical interaction. It's about making judgments about what best to do in a complex and potentially life-threatening or health-threatening situation. And those judgments relate to things, physical, mental, emotional, social, whatever, which are extremely complex and completely unique. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a 14-year-old with acne and other 14-year-olds have also got acne. The particular concerns that that 14-year-old will have are going to be unique because of all sorts of other things going on in that individual's life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's, that's a very simple example. Now, that means that, you know, as an estimate, something like 80% of all clinical encounters cannot be protocolized. And that is very different from banking. I was checking my balance just this morning. I hit the app. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to go into my current account and see if I had enough money to make a purchase. And every time I think, you know, every time that goes through my head, I I make the same uh, couple of keystrokes as does everybody else. So it is a much simpler, uh, more straightforward uh, task. It's not the same task. So when I get onto one of those e-consultation forms, uh, and try to have a conversation with a doctor. I want. I actually want a conversation. I don't want to just follow an algorithm. And we need to factor in that healthcare is a very complex human interaction. 
Um, and it's also very risky. I mean, th- these are the things that are coming out at the moment. You know, remote was, you know, considered a really important thing at the beginning of the pandemic, as indeed it was. And now what's coming out in, in the newspapers is, um, you know, GP missed my cancer because I only got a phone call or I only got a video call. Um, so, so we need to work out the um, balance of risk and benefit in terms uh, when we're thinking about uh, remote consultations and when and for whom they're appropriate and through what medium. So how, how do we need to change this debate? You talked earlier about the sense that it would have been better at the beginning of COVID if we'd had a more deliberative approach. We'd opened up to people the the probab- probabilities, the, the risks, uh, allowed a, a, a freer debate about it. Do you feel the same way about this, that, that, that what we need to recognise is that there are pros and cons around the greater use of, of of remote consultations. Obviously, enormous advances for advantages. Well, some advantages for clinicians in terms of their time, but much bigger advantages actually for individuals who choose to do it because you can do it from your own home and you can fit it in when when you want to. But you know, are are the risks also kind of in a sense inherent, which is that there will be things that w- will be missed, and in a sense. One of the challenges of all this technology is that often it starts out with bold claims that we can avoid people needing to be seen face-to-face or avoid people going to ED or whatever. And then because of the risks, the algorithm changes, the calculus changes, and you end up finding that these forms are kind of triaging or whatever, that many fewer people than you think are are stopped from going to their ultimate destination, which then leads people to say, well, was it worth doing it at all? So I mean, how do we work our way through this maze, Trude? I think there's a couple of things to say before I answer that directly. Um, one is that I think the development of remote services is another example of where the pandemic provided a massive impetus. Uh, and I think we probably made more progress in the last 18 months in terms of uh, remote services than we'd made in the previous 20 years. Um, so, so I think the pandemic really was a burning platform for innovation there. All sorts of really interesting things happened, but p- particularly some of the tech companies were very agile and they worked with um, frontline clinicians to develop very bespoke pieces of software that allowed them to do um, particularly video consultations in a way that really fitted in with the workflows and patterns of working. Um, So that's one thing. The second thing to say about remote consultations is we've got to be very, very careful to distinguish between the medium of consultation and the workload and the staffing and uh, all that kind of thing. Because what we've got at the moment is something like 10% of the NHS workforce off sick. So we're understaffed massively. We've got Uh, A lot of GPs in particular taking early retirement. They're just exhausted. They've had enough. And when Matt Hancock was um, Secretary of State, his big thing was that we will continue to do remote consultations 
in order to solve or help to solve that workforce problem. And so he assumed that technology was going to make the health service more efficient. Um, it was going to free up clinicians to do other things. His, that, was his, that was his very line. Uh, actually, of course, uh, there was no evidence that remote consultations were going to make healthcare more efficient. And actually, there is some evidence that it, for some kinds of problem, they make it less efficient because of the double handling problem. Let me tell you one more thing about remote consultations is that they are now being used, certainly in primary care, as a, a kind of gatekeeping system to the front door of general practice. And that is a great shame because only two years ago, you could just walk into a GP surgery and book yourself an appointment and you might not get one tomorrow, but it was perfectly possible to say, I'd like to see my doctor, please, you know, in two weeks time or something. You can't do that anymore. You've got to go through what they call total triage. Um, And the GPs are actually quite reluctant to remove that barrier, if you like simply because they are so overworked, so exhausted, so understaffed. So before we talk about remote, I would like to talk about staffing uh, and staff well-being and workforce and where all these extra doctors and nurses and pharmacists, et cetera, et cetera, are going to come from. Um, Because if we solved that, then I think we could have a much clearer conversation about the place of remote. Yeah, although I guess, Trish, those workforce issues, even if the government turns its full attention to them, will take a few years to have effect and things are deteriorating now, not improving. And so we have to find some way of getting through the the coming period. I mean, it, it feels to me like this is a kind of service design challenge that what we need to be thinking about is bringing clinicians and patient representatives and policymakers and others together and exploring uh, uh, how we can redesign services, but in ways which are deeply informed, almost ethnographically informed by people's experiences rather than by assumptions about what people want. And and I was talking to someone the other day, actually, who, who said a very simple thing, but I thought it was absolutely right, which was, in the end, when you are worried about something, you want to meet somebody who can do two things. First of all, you can trust them. And secondly, right. they can actually do something for you. And, and it feels to me as though one of the problems with the way in which we do triage is that we expect people to be satisfied with someone they may not trust, but also, and worse, somebody who can't actually do anything for them, really, except refer them down the line. I think that's true, but I think we also need to shift our expectations. And it it reminds me of a dear departed relative of mine who, it must be 30 years ago, he was diagnosed with diabetes at, at the age of about 70 and couldn't believe that he was going to be seeing the nurse. Now, this was a guy who had the mildest of diet-controlled diabetes. He was overweight. He had, you know, all that kind of thing. He was a very simple, straightforward case for a, for a you know, diabetes-trained practice nurse. And he went along and he was bitterly upset that the doctor wasn't going to be managing his diabetes. And I put a lot of pressure on uh, this relative of mine and, and, you know, talked up the whole idea of, of nurse-led diabetes care. 
Uh, and within three or four months, he'd completely come round to the fact that, that, that this nurse actually knew an awful lot about diabetes, that she was able to support him uh, with his diet and his exercise, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and came to trust her, if, if, to use your, your terminology. So I think this is all very well that patients say, well, I'd like, I've got to see someone that I trust and you've given me a paramedic or you've given me a GP when I really want to see a neurologist. Actually... It may well be that this is partly to do with public expectations, um, which could shift quite considerably to accommodate a much wider range of health professionals dealing with uh, uh, people's problems. No, I completely agree with that, uh, uh, Trish. It's no, there's no question that quite a lot of people who knock on the door of the GPs could be seeing someone other than a GP and getting a good, faster, and 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 possibly more kind of human experience as a consequence of that than 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 getting a few moments with a, a hard pressed GP. I think my point is we need to think about how we build that trust. And, and I think part of the problem we've got at the moment is there's a kind of national debate, which is people are palming you off, and if you feel you're being palmed off, this is not the best circumstance for you to start to trust uh, people and to understand what they have to offer. So that's one of the ways in which this debate uh, has gone wrong. And one of the ways in which I think we need to try and think of ways in which we can pull the public back into this a bit more, because the public is is in a state of, of, of suspicion towards this. Now, uh, yeah, can I just come yeah. back to you with that? I think that's, that's true. I'm just going to share a little bit of the research data that we've got on this is one of the things that our patient advisory groups and the patients that we've interviewed say is the thing that upsets them the most is not being able to select what they believe is the most appropriate mm. uh, type of consultation. And so they get told that what they're going to have is a phone back from a healthcare assistant. And they absolutely know that because it requires a change of prescription medication that they have to see either a GP or a nurse prescriber. And they know that, but the protocol is telling them that they've got to have this intermediate step. And they, the patients say to us, that is what is inefficient, is that, that they, the patient who understand what's wrong with them, can't actually uh, have agency, if you like, in making the selection. And, and then the answer comes back from, uh, you know, some of the people who designed the system saying, well, if everybody had agency, then they'd all flood in and want face to face appointments. And we can't do that because uh, we're not staffed to do it. Uh, and so, yeah, there isn't. This is a wicked problem. This is a wicked problem. There's no easy solution. It is. I remember a similar problem in public policy. And the conclusion we came to was lots of signposts but no no entry signs and i think that's kind of what you have to do here but it's the the doing of it is a different matter but it 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 it's it's something we're going to have to work on and that takes me to the i i regret to say final because i i could talk to you for hours trish but the kind of final thing i want to turn to which is the broader question of the way in which we think about scientific technological innovation and and i want to i guess suggest a thesis to you here uh trish which is that my feeling and and this is not just about the health service i see this in all sorts of settings but that we tend to view innovations 
too much as kind of single changes in complex systems without thinking about the overall system within which that innovation is going to take place. And we need to look at things with a more systemic lens and that the reason that often things go wrong is simply because all sorts of unexpected effects happen in complex systems uh, and people were expecting a very simple thing to happen and it doesn't turn out like that. Now, that's the first part of the thesis. The second part of the thesis is that's one of the reasons we should try to adopt a, a kind of principle of subsidiarity or devolution when we come to decision making. Because it is almost impossible to fully understand the complexity of these systems when you're sitting a long way away from them, which is why it is that people in the centre often have a very simplistic view of how innovation takes place. And so I'm not for a moment suggesting that we don't recognise that there are the best, there's a best way of doing things. There is often a best way of doing things. And we don't need to ensure that where there is technology that really works, that we encourage people to take it up. I, I get all of that. And, you know, we have an apparatus to make sure we do that. But also we need to understand that, that if we are talking about innovations that require this systemic lens, we need to let people reasonably close to the front line be involved in that process just because of the sheer complexity of it. I think... What you say about complex systems and the idea that, you know, letting local um, people and departments sort things out locally as far as they can uh, is, is, applies to any aspect of a complex system. But there's something that I'd like to bring in, which is technology, because technology complicates things um, in an interesting way. For example... It is almost always the case when you introduce a technology into a workplace in particular, that the person who's putting in the work into that technology is not the person who gains the benefit from that technology. Uh, so, for example, you know, when I was a GP, they brought in all these electronic records and suddenly I had to put in coded data to make sure that someone else in a different building, uh, in a different department, you know, all the rest of it, could press a button and get aggregated data on what was going on with my patients. So it made work for me, but it saved work for someone in the public health department. Now, one of the things we need to do when we introduce technologies is try and map how the work is changed across the system because that, that technology might well save money overall. But if it isn't saving money for the person who's doing the work, they're not going to be very motivated to do it. So that just kind of underlines what you were saying about complex systems uh, and subsidiarity. The other thing is another aspect of, of technology, and particularly computerized data, which is that the farther that data has to travel, the more it loses its meaning. Interesting. Uh, now, I'll give you an example of that is, um, you know, if someone came to me as a GP, you know, having had some penicillin and came out in a red rash, I might well write free text in the notes um, patient came in with a red rash day after penicillin, etc. But I might also put some coded data, which just said penicillin allergy. That person then goes into hospital two years later, and uh, the doctor there looks on their summary care record and sees penicillin allergy. But they don't know where that data came from. They don't know what happened when the patient had penicillin, because that bit was in the free text and didn't get transmitted. And all that context 
you know, as the GP, I knew that was the first time the patient had had the penicillin. So it probably was a true allergy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but because that data has now traveled and been coded and decoded, uh, it doesn't mean the same thing. Uh, and the hospital doctor may or may not trust it. So I think you're right about uh, local. Um, local is good. On the other hand, you know, standardization is also good. And so you get that tension between standardization and contingency. Uh, but I would, um, you know, think about that when those are any, anyone listening who thinks what we really need is what Richard Granger used to call ruthless standardization right across the NHS with everyone using the same system in the same way and coding everything in the same way. Uh, no, we want something a bit rougher, a bit messier. Um, a bit more locally sensitive, a bit more patient-centred. Thanks, Trish. And it's been absolutely fascinating. And uh, there's a lot of areas I'd like to go on into in more depth. But Trish, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. This episode of Health on the Line is part of our new Integration in Action initiative, which brings together podcasts, events and case studies from our members on themes affecting the health and care system. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. And save the date for NHS Confed Expo, the premier event in the health and care calendar, taking place on the 15th and 16th of June 2022 in Liverpool.